Open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 3. That passage that Susan just read for us is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, As you turn there, let me tell you about a project that was started this past year in uh, West Texas. I almost said the middle of nowhere in West Texas, but I figured we might have some West Texas folks in the room with us here. Um, Jeff Bezos is paying for a 10,000-year clock to be constructed. It's going to be buried inside a mountain to protect it. It's going to be 500 feet high. It's going to be solar-powered operated, so it doesn't need any like external power source other than the sun. It's designed to tick for 10,000 years. And when I say tick for 10,000 years, I mean it's designed to tick once every year 10,000 times. There is a uh, a century hand that will move once every 100 years. Think about that for a minute. Even better, there is a cuckoo that will come out, but only once a millennia. All right, now this is an interesting project to say the least. Uh, Bezos himself has invested $42 million into this 10,000-year clock. So you too can have one for the low, low price. Now, as I thought about this, I thought, why are they building this clock? And so I did a little digging, and I found out that it's the brainchild of a group called the Long Now Foundation. You can go to their website, not right now, but later. Go to their website, and here's what they'll say their mission is. They want to foster long-term thinking and responsibility in the framework of the next 10,000 years. Pretty interesting, like even sort of an admirable goal. They're, they're trying to say, look, we're, we're too temporal, we're too focused on short things. We want to stretch people's thinking to think of the consequences of our actions for the next 10,000 years. And by the way, why do they choose 10,000 years? That's the average length time of a civilization. So the odds are 10,000 years are all we've got, humanity, you know, from this perspective. Now, obviously, they're, they're, they're representing sort of a, an external, secular worldview here. In fact, as I thought about it more, I said, this is a fascinating illustration of Ecclesiastes 3.11. That little phrase you heard Susan read at the end of our passage this morning, God has set eternity in the heart of man. And it expresses itself in all kinds of ways. We actually have a pretty interesting relationship with time when you think about it. Time is the one thing we literally cannot live without. And yet, we're always fighting against it. We never seem like we have enough of it. We're always, at least, you know, in my mind, I'm saying, man, I wish I had more time. I'm, I'm terrified. You know, some of us are when we think about it. Of What, what if today's my last day? What if the, the clock stops ticking? What happens when time runs out? You know, I, I say I'm, I'm terrified. In, in, in my flesh, there is a sense that I am. For all of us, we have this sort of terrifying nature. In fact, I heard it said this week that there, there's something terrific about time, both in the positive sense, we usually use that word terrific, and in the original archaic meaning of the word terrific, terror, terrific. That's where that word actually came from. The passage this morning takes us into a deep dive about time, the good, the bad, the everything in between. What can we control? What can't we control? And how do we feel about all of that? That's where we're going this morning in Ecclesiastes 3. Now, let me recap the study for those of you that haven't been here or been in and out. Ecclesiastes uh, is a journey with a fascinating philosophical mind. And, you know, we're not exactly sure who wrote Ecclesiastes, but it's pretty certain it represents the wisdom and voice of Solomon. So we attribute 
authorship to Solomon. It was either written by him or it was written down by others reflecting on his life, reflecting on his wisdom. So the voice of Solomon is exploring the outer boundaries of life under the sun. And we talked about this idea of under the sun means life in this world, under the sun, where we, you and I live still till today, and it's not a perfect place. In fact, it's a fallen creation, as Genesis 3 would teach us. We've walked through primarily three things so far. We've talked about pleasure, we've talked about work, we've talked about wisdom. And at the end of the day, as Solomon has explored all these three areas, he's finding that they all end the same way. They all end with the termination of life. And so because of that shortness, that brevity, that temporalness to everything under the sun, is there really any meaning? Is there any, really any weight? It's all a vapor. The words of the teacher in this book, it's all vanity is the word that he chooses. Now Lloyd last week did a wonderful job of, of kind of bringing uh, to the forefront one of the most important themes of this book, which is death. Like death's always in the background in Ecclesiastes. Sometimes it's in the foreground. In fact, it's death that causes Solomon to say, everything's vanity, everything's vapor, everything's meaningless because it's all going to die. Every living thing is all going to die on this planet. He's realizing that. and He's saying it's a vapor. Now, I just want to make a note. Two weeks ago, I brought you chocolates. Last week, Lloyd brought you the worldwide death clock. Okay, can we just all make a note of that? All right. Just so. But I'm glad he did. Here's why I'm glad he did. Seeing that, that, that number increase, you know, two people die every second across the world. And seeing that number slowly increase, I don't know how much it was by the end, 8,000 something people had died since the beginning of the worship service until the end of the worship service, you know, last week on that death clock. Think about how many more have died in the uh, ensuing seven days. I'm glad Lloyd brought that to our mind because you can't get around it. And Solomon reminds us in very stark way that your life my life, you know, some of you are thinking, but what about Jesus? We'll get there, all right? Your life, my life, unless Christ comes back in the few years we have left, and we don't know how long that is, we're going to all end the same way, from dust to dust. Now, we get to chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes, and Solomon's going to get right into the heart of things by talking about time and eternity. And this is going to take us down a deep dive. We talked about following Solomon down the rabbit hole. Great opportunity for us to do that this morning. Verses 1 through 8 of our passage, we're going through 11. Verses 1 through 8, probably the best-known part of Ecclesiastes in the whole book. It's a poem. Right? It's, it's well known because you've heard it read at funerals. It kind of reminds us God's in control, gives us a sense of comfort and security around that. We're going to unpack that a little bit. But it also is well known because of a certain song written by the birds. How many people of you have a certain song roaming around your head right now, right? Yeah, that, that song, I hate to tell you, is just going to keep turn, turn, turning in your mind as we go through this. Um, that was probably a pity laugh, but I thank you. Now, Verse 1 contains the thesis of the whole poem that follows it. So let's dig into verse 1. There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven. In the eight verses, from verse 1 to verse 8, time, the word time is repeated 30 times. You know, it, it means uh, not necessarily a, a measurement of seconds or hours in this particular use, but the Hebrew word means a moment appointed or a season appointed, an event that's appointed. It, it's essentially saying there's an ordered universe with intentionality and purpose, and everything finds its place in time. And then he'll go on to list 14 sets of contrasting pairs. 
So 28 items are contained in this. A time for this, a time for that, a time for this, a time for that, a time for this, a time for that. And he orders them poetically in 14 sets that all contrast each other. So there's a time to be born, there's a time to die, there's a time to laugh, there's a time to mourn. And this is a, kind of a poetic device to kind of help us not just understand the information, but actually be stirred by it, be moved by it in some way. Um, we might say things like, he looked high and low, or she moved heaven and earth. And it's the same thing. It's the idea that it includes everything in between, high and low and everything in between, heaven and earth and everything in between. All human activity, Solomon is saying, is covered here. There's an appointed time for everything. And the effect of the poem is kind of this rhythmic back and forth motion. The ebbing and flowing of time. You might think of it as the swinging of a pendulum in a clock. Or maybe think of the ticking sound of a clock. I don't know why you would be thinking of that, but maybe. Now, since this is a poem, I want to read it as a section, as a whole, before we break it down. Because poetry is art. And art is designed not just to inform and communicate and educate Art is designed to move us, to stir us, even at the emotional level. And that's best done when you see the whole. So I'm going to reread this poem to you again. You've already heard it once from Susan. I want to reread it to you. And then we'll talk about four observations from what Solomon is saying through this poem. Ecclesiastes 3, I'll reread one and then we'll keep going through eight. There is an appointed time for everything. There is a time for every event under heaven. A time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to tear down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to throw stones, and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace, and a time to shun embracing, a time to search, and a time to give up is lost, a time to keep, and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Now, if you're like me, you've probably wondered, what does that all mean? It, you know, it's rhythmic, it's interesting, it's sort of soothing in a way, but what's the meaning behind all of it? Although I, I did grab a little bit of helpful meaning from it as I was thinking about it this week. You know, I've got three daughters, and the oldest is getting almost to the dating age. And, and I saw this little verse here that I, I might quote sometime to some suitor. There is a time to refrain from embracing. I'm just saying, right? So you can use that, dads in the room. Now... I want to give you, you know, seriously, I want to give you four observations about this poem to help us understand what Solomon's trying to get at, uh, at this. Here's the first observation. There's beauty in the rhythms of life. There's beauty there. God made the world to have a cadence, to have a rhythm to it. Um, think about it this way. Creation is more poetry than it is prose. Creation has a cadence. Years, seasons, days, all these were established by God, and we live within this rhythm. We live within this system. So think about the sun rising and the sun setting, all as the earth spins around its axis in a 24-hour cycle. Summer, 
is followed by autumn, is followed by winter, is followed by spring, and then the whole process repeats itself as the earth completes a 365-day in one-fourth you know, cycle around the sun. Our planet, or rather the tide, goes in. The tide goes out according to the moon. God created all these rhythms. God created all this. Mankind did not invent time. We just figured out how to measure it. Now, if you think about the creation account in Genesis 1, compare it to Ecclesiastes 3, they have some things in common. You know, two different angles, two different purposes, but they both have some poetic rhythm to them. So in Genesis chapter 1, we read, And God said, and there was evening and morning the first day. And God said, and there was evening and morning the second day. Do you hear the rhythm? And God said, and there was evening and morning the third day, etc., etc. Six days followed by one day of Sabbath rest. And so we learn from Genesis 1, now in Ecclesiastes 3, there's a rhythm, there's a cadence to creation all around us, and there's beauty in the rhythm. I want to give you an image to kind of keep in your mind as we walk through this passage. Uh, imagine our creation, our, our universe, particularly our earth itself, as, as sort of like the, an intricately working grandfather clock that God has designed for us to inhabit, okay? All the gears fit, all the pieces fit. There's this rhythmic ticking, tick-tock, tick-tock. We live inside of this clock. Now, I'm not going there to say God created the clock and wound it up and stepped outside and just we're figuring it out and he's not involved. That's what some people believe, not what we believe. He's very much in it with us. He's very much involved. He's in creation all around us. He's involved in our lives. But I want you to think about the world according to the rhythms of a very intricately, purposefully designed craftsman. God's rhythms shape our lives, and there's beauty in that. That's the first observation. Here's the second, and it contrasts with the first. Second observation, there's also much heartache in the rhythms of life. Solomon's perspective under the sun reflects a fallen creation, which you and I still live in. Notice how many of the activities he listed are downers. Dying, killing, tearing down, weeping, mourning, giving up, throwing away, tearing apart, hating, going to war. These are all parts of a broken creation. These are things that were actually not there in the beginning, and now they've come in. And God is working all things together for good, but we have to recognize, because it's clear as day in the poem, not all feels good to us. Not all is even understandable by us. This poem, I think, is a reminder of the flaws and pain points of life as much as it is a reminder of the beauty of everything working together. So in the introduction week, uh, we had two lenses that we talked about by which you have to read Ecclesiastes in order to interpret it correctly. The first one was you have to read it through the lens of the fallen creation. You have to read it understanding that Solomon is pressing up against the outer boundaries of a fallen world. And so you get to Ecclesiastes 3, and he's kind of like, look, it's just it's back and forth, good and bad, ebbs and flows. Is there really purpose? Is there really meaning in all of this? And so I think that's why this poem is deeper and harder than we usually want it to be in our song and read at the funerals. Uh, it's not just soothing, it's also startling. Because you may be laughing now, but that means at some point in time you will be weeping. You may be dancing now, but at some point you will be mourning, and of course, vice versa as well. 
Think of it this way. I think this is where Solomon's getting after uh, in, this, in this poem is, by and large, the rhythms of life happen to us rather than being chosen by us. You will not choose the time of your weeping. You will not choose the time of your mourning. You will not choose, most of you, the time of your uprooting. You will not choose the time of your death. Now, it doesn't mean there aren't things in life that you do have wonderful uh, freedom to choose, but the greater narrative of the big picture, the greater narrative of the creation story that we live in is that the things that mostly shape us, the things that most define us are things that are not in our control. That's our second observation. Not only is the rhythms of life beautiful, they're also hard. There's a lot of heartache. Third observation from the poem is this. Um, So many of our activities relate to our connectedness as human beings. So many of our activities relate to our connectedness. Uh, There's all kinds of relational language in this poem. Listen to the words of David Gibson. He, he wrote a, a very interesting commentary on Ecclesiastes, and, and he was writing about this fact. He says, We're profoundly relational beings. Most of the seasons of our lives are taken up with navigating the different stages of our relationships and the effects they have on us. We dance at a wedding, and we mourn the loss of the one we danced with. We laugh together and then later weep for what the people we used to laugh with have done to us. We grow to love some people and come to hate others. Those are truths. We live in this sort of relational context, and God made us relational creatures, and we feel that through the seasons of life. So the early part of my life was primarily defined by the relationships in my nuclear family. I was a son and a brother, and still am. But the mid part of my life is being primarily defined and shaped by new relationships, right? I met a beautiful woman in college and she's now my wife and she's formed and shaped me as I have her. We now have three kids. They form and shape. Someday we may have grandchildren. Friends come, friends go. The seasons of our lives are oftentimes defined by us according to our relationships. Don't lose sight of that because here's what happens. Because of the potential loss that we sense in this deepest area of our lives and our relationships, we all instinctively self-protect. And so in these relationships, we withhold, we shrink back. Sometimes we defensively lash out and wound others. Um, I heard human beings described once as porcupines that, that, that come together and, and scooch up next to each other because we desperately need the warmth of other bodies and yet we can't help but pricking each other as we do. You know, these are the relationships of our lives. We've got to have relationship, and yet we're afraid of them. And God has somehow wired this to be so. I, I just want to say this to tease you a little bit on where we're going to go. How would it might be possible for us to step out of self-protection and obey God's command to love other people as we love ourselves? How might that be possible? I'll give you a hint. You can't do it apart from alien intervention. <laughs> You can't do it on your own, right? Someone is going to have to come alongside and enable us to truly love. For now, it's enough for you to keep in mind that we're relational beings and most of the seasons of our lives are defined by our relationships. Let's move on to the fourth observation. We'll stitch all the pieces together at the end. Fourth observation is many of our activities relate to work. 
All right, so many relate to relationships, many relate to work. Notice all the hustle and bustle of human activity that's listed in this poem. It's a busy poem. Planting, uprooting, tearing down and building up, throwing stones, gathering stones, tearing apart, sewing together, right? Your, your work falls in there, although it may not be recognizable. In fact, all the work that we do, creating, consuming, planning, executing, cleaning, arranging, creating problems, solving problems, all of our work falls in this ebb and flow of humanity coming and going on this planet, creating things, selling things, buying things, you know, et cetera, et cetera. If you're an accountant, think about debits and credits. You know, things come in, things go out. This is all of our work. And with work in mind, Solomon immediately follows the poem of 1 through 8 with a question in verse 9 and 10. So let's now look at Solomon's question as he reflects on his own poem. Verse 9, what profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? Verse 10, I've seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. Now, this is the first point that Solomon explicitly names God and he's saying God's behind all of this. Now, God was assumed throughout the poem because to have intention and purpose, a season for everything, you got to have a creator, right? But now you get to verse 9 and 10, and he's saying God's the author of it all. But isn't it interesting that he immediately follows the beautiful poem with a stark question? And the question is this, is there anything for us to gain from all this TikTok activity? All this coming and going, all the mourning and laughing and dying and toiling. Is there anything to gain from all this? Now, if you've been tracking with us through Ecclesiastes, you actually know that that's a rhetorical question. You know what Solomon's answer is. You know that from the first few sentences of the book in chapter 1. Meaningless. Vanity. All is vanity. All is vapor. All lacks Substance, all lacks profit. So Solomon's asking a question. He already knows the answer. The answer is no. Like there's no long-term profit. There's no lasting gain for human beings living under the sun. We all will face the same fate. It's sort of death that evens everything out. Someone has sort of cynically stated about Ecclesiastes 3 that what you have here in this famous poem, 28 items, 14 of which are positive, 14 of which are negative, and you add them all together, and you get zero. This actually seems to be Solomon's main idea. So as much as we want to make this poem kind of the soothing, beautiful, comforting thing, and, and I, I'm saying there is that there. Solomon himself is saying about it at the end of it all, what does it get us? The minuses cancel out the positives. What an uplifting teacher this guy was, right? Now, here's his perspective on time. And we've talked about Solomon's perspective on pleasure, his perspective on work, his perspective on wisdom. Here's his perspective on time. Despite the beauty and orderliness of the rhythms, if there's nothing for us to gain at the end of it all, then we're just going to start right back where we started. It's like walking a mile on a treadmill. Okay, we've done all this activity and we haven't gotten anywhere. In fact, you know, go down to, to verse 20. We won't put it on the screen, but Ecclesiastes 3.20, listen to what he says. All go to the same place. All came from dust and all will return to dust. That's where we get that, you know, dust to dust kind of thing. Now, that's Solomon's problem with time. 
That's Solomon's problem with the beautiful rhythms. It's like, fine, there's beauty, there's, there's rest, there's some cadence, there's, there's some something in there back and forth, but they all cancel each other out. It all ends in the same place, all returns to dust. The news in verse 11 is actually going to get a little bit worse, believe it or not. And I want to camp out on this verse because I think it's one of the most important verses in the entire book. And so we'll unpack it. Let me read the whole thing and then we'll break it down phrase by phrase. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. Now, it doesn't start out bad news. The bad news comes at the end, but let's talk about the good news first. Let's talk about the first couple phrases of this verse. He has made everything appropriate in its time. Here he's going back to his original thesis. He's like, everything fits, everything makes sense. A lot of translations translate appropriate as beautiful. He's made everything beautiful in his time. They go that way because that's the literal translation of the Hebrew word. He's made it all beautiful. So what Solomon is saying is there is a master plan. There's this tapestry that God is working on and it's beautiful. It's got to be. He's made everything beautiful. He's made everything appropriate. Everything fits according to its time. Now, that's good news, right? Then he gets to this next phrase. He has also set eternity in their heart. He's talking about us. He's talking about human beings. That's clear from the context. What does it mean to have eternity in your heart. And I've thought about this a lot this week. Um, start with the word heart. That's not your emotional center. You know, the, the, the word in, in Hebrew and also in Greek that's translated in our Bible, heart. They, they weren't talking about your emotional center or your romantic place. They're talking about the core of your person. They're talking about your thoughts and your feelings and your desires and your choices. It's like, what is it in you that makes you you? That's your core. That's your person. That's your heart, as they're talking about. So God has put in that core eternity. Now, eternity, you know, and I did the word study. It means what you think it means. It means time that never ends, right? It means like a life without time, a life maybe living outside of time, infinite time. It's hard for us to imagine because we're so time-bound. In fact, if you really think about existence apart from time, it can kind of freak you out a little bit. Like I remember as a kid, like lying awake at night, you know, staring into the darkness, thinking about like, I'm going to live in heaven forever. And like, that was scary to me. <laughs> like it never ends. What do you mean it never ends? You know, and after 10,000 years, we've only just begun, whatever that song says. It's like, yikes, you know. Here's why. All we know is time. All we know is the, the kind of the, the, the warm confines of this time-bound creation. All we know is the grandfather clock we live in. What Solomon, I think, is saying is that the core of every human being is a longing to transcend time, to climb out of the clock, to join our creator on the other side. To be able to see it all. Like, what was this gear? And why did that pendulum swing that way? To have it all make sense. To sort of live forever. And this is a universal longing. I think it explains a lot of things about humanity. Secular and religious. 
It explains sort of the universal quest for the fountain of youth that, you know, symbolically, right, that, that almost all cultures seem to have. It explains how much money our culture spends on anti-aging stuff. It's like we don't want to get older because we don't want to get toward the end of our time. It explains, I think, our grief at funerals. For me, it explains sometimes my sentimental wish that my girls would never grow up. I know in my head that would be terrible. But there's something here that's like if they would just stay little. It explains, I think, the the lump in our throats when we look back in time. Those moments that we can't recapture. Maybe you see a photograph or a video and there's just a longing in you. I think this even explains Jeff Bezos spending all those millions of dollars on a 10,000-year clock. God has placed eternity in the core of you. Now, the last phrase of this verse is where the real problem is. All right? Let's finish it. Yet. Okay? Or, or but. That's not necessarily a good word in this context. So that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. All right, this is bad news. Okay, let me unpack it for you. Solomon's saying God has a perspective that we cannot have. We can only see our little moment in time, our 30 years, 50 years, 70 years, 80 years, 90 years, however long we have. We can only see that period of time. We can't see the end. We can't see the beginning from the end. So putting this whole verse together, here's Solomon's big problem, okay? And if you've been kind of zoning out in the last five minutes, jump back in right here. Because this this verse is key to the whole book. What Solomon is saying is, God made everything beautiful. Everything makes sense to him. He can see it all. The ebbs and flows, they all work according to God's economy, but I can't see it. In fact, not only can I not see the beginning from the end, but he has placed eternity in my heart. And so I long for something more. I long to step out of the clock and I can't get out. I can't see it. As far as Solomon is concerned, there is no way out of the clock. We have eternity in our hearts, but our destiny is death. And you can almost hear him pounding his fists against the walls of his own understanding. There's got to be more. You made me for more. Why does everything end in death? Now, as we take all this in, we follow Solomon down the rabbit hole. This is the moment where we need to remember the second lens by which we have to read this book. Okay, lens number one, read Ecclesiastes through the lens of the fallen creation. Lens number two, Read Ecclesiastes through the lens of progressive revelation. Progressive revelation. Here's what that means. At Solomon's point in time, he couldn't see the whole picture because God hadn't given it yet. At Solomon's point in time, he didn't know what we know. Now, we have a lot in common. We still feel this longing and this pounding against the wall. But Christian, for those of you that claim to know Christ, you know something Solomon didn't know. Like God over time has progressively revealed more and more and more. And so what does it look like for us to read Ecclesiastes through that lens, through the lens of a Christian, the follower of Christ? 
Let's start by talking about Solomon's theology, and then we can compare it to our theology. Solomon, in this passage, is actually reflecting good Jewish theology circa 1000 B.C., It's about the time that he was living. So what did that mean? Well, here's what Solomon knew. He knew that there was one God who created it all. And by the way, that was a huge deal because until God had revealed that, there was a lot of mystery and everybody was a polytheist, right? And then God started revealing himself to Abraham, etc. The Lord, your God is one God. And he even gave the name, I am Yahweh. Solomon knew that. Solomon knew that God was sovereign. Solomon knew that God was the giver of everything, the creator of everything. He knew that God was in control, even in a broken creation. That theology is reflected in the the poem, isn't it? It's like God gives, God takes away, but he's in control of it all as the designer, as the author. Uh, at, At that point in Revelation, God's progressive revelation, here's what Solomon didn't know. He didn't know much about Messiah to come. In fact, As far as we can tell through the the books that preceded Ecclesiastes, Messiah had only been hinted at. Now, he was hinted at, but not explicitly explained. It would not be until the prophecies primarily of Isaiah, much after Solomon's lifetime, that we start to get a clearer picture of who Messiah was going to be and why he was going to come. So Solomon didn't know much about Messiah. He also didn't know much about life after death. That was not a a big part of Jewish theology. In fact, even when Jesus came on the scene a thousand years after Solomon, there were still debates in Jewish theological circles. Is there going to be a resurrection of the dead or not? And some good Orthodox Jews said yes. Some said no. It just wasn't clear. God hadn't made it clear yet. And so here's what I believe was going on in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Solomon is doing what any of us would do if we had the brain to do it in 1000 B.C., He's pushing his beliefs as far as they can go, but they're hitting a wall. His theology, and I don't mean to say this you know, in any kind of disrespectful way, he was where he was in God's progressive revelation. His theology did not take him as far as he wanted it to take him. Now here's where we can kind of compare and contrast where we are, and we can say this. Any belief system, any religion without the gospel can only go so far. Are you with me on this? I mean, you know, our, our friends up here just told us the whole gospel story. I don't know if you were paying attention earlier, right? Any belief system apart from the gospel can only go so far. How far can it go? Well, here's where you can go with religion. Religion apart from the gospel, here's where you can go. You can say, there must be a God that created it all. Um, I, I'm going to trust that he's good. Uh, I'm going to trust that he's in control. But I can't see the end from the beginning. I don't know where it's all going. And so he's just essentially asking me just to believe without much sight. You just have to believe that he is good. You just have to believe that he is just. You just have to believe. Just have faith. Now this is totally true. And even though we know more, we don't know all. So this still applies to us too, right? And yet, and yet... If we stopped there, and a lot of people preaching this book, that's where they stop. Let's just talk about the theology given in Ecclesiastes. Well, I don't think that's faithfully interpreting Ecclesiastes in light of the whole 66 books of our canon. So one of the things that Lloyd and I hope to do here in what we're doing with this series and every series we teach is we're trying to teach you how to read the Bible as a Christian. 
We're trying to teach you that every book of the Bible ultimately points to Jesus, even those in the Old Testament, and they do not find their ultimate interpretation until they lead to him. Now, what's interesting to me is that Solomon is not content with his theology at that point in time. He knows there's more. He just can't see it yet. As wise as Solomon was, he obviously couldn't see beyond his own place in history. But fast forward 1,000 years in time, and I want to read you the words of another brilliant Jewish theologian who was very familiar, by the way, with Solomon's writings in the book of Ecclesiastes. He probably had most of it memorized. And Paul, who I'm talking about now, would write something in Galatians 4, I think, with Ecclesiastes 3 in mind. And I want to read you this. You can turn there if you want to. Galatians 4, I'm going to put it on the screen as well, verses 3 to 6. Listen to what Paul says, and think about how connected this is with what Solomon was wrestling with. Galatians 4, verse 3. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. All right, that doesn't make a lot of sense without a bit of explanation. He's not talking about like, like little bitty kids, you know, toddlers, literally. He's talking about we, mankind, and particularly the Jewish race, but all mankind, were like children because we just didn't know what we didn't know. We hadn't matured yet. He's talking about the time of Solomon and the time of of others in the Old Testament. What he's saying is there was a bondage. We were held in bondage by the elemental things of the world. Does that sound like Solomon saying, I'm trapped? I know there's more, but I can't see beyond these walls of this time-bound creation? I think it sounds a lot like that. Then he goes on with a, a word that is now a beautiful word, but... When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, verse 5, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, this is so amazing. What Paul is saying is, you were trapped humanity, and now Jesus came so you can be released from the bondage and you can be rescued and taken as a son to the place where the Father is. You can be rescued from that bondage and lifted out. Paul is saying is the longing for eternity that the Father put in your heart can be filled. No one could say that before Jesus came. Here's what's even more remarkable is that who or what fills the longing for eternity God himself through the Spirit. Paul uses the same word. He says the Spirit's in your heart, in your core. Now, different Greek word, but same exact concept. It's in your core, in who you are is where the Spirit now dwells. So you have an eternity-shaped gap, according to Solomon, and you have a God-shaped, through the Spirit, fulfillment of that gap, according to Paul if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, this is what I think Augustine meant when he wrote his famous line, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. That's the same idea. So the gospel it goes beyond what any religion could. I know some of you, you've been at church all your lives. As soon as you hear the word gospel, you're like, okay, I've already got that. Check the box. I don't need to learn the rest of this. No, 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 no. It goes deeper. Okay, here's what the gospel proclaims. Because of what Jesus has done, you will 
live forever if you've put your trust in him. Because of what Jesus is doing now and will do in the future, you will see everything made right. The debits will no longer cancel out the credits. All will be made right and you will see it. You will see the beginning from the end. You will see A to Z. Here's the good news of the gospel. Your soul cries out for something lasting and permanent. Does it not? It will be filled. It will be filled with something lasting and permanent. The gospel says through faith in Jesus Christ, there will be a day when you will climb out of the grandfather clock of a time-bound creation that you are in right now and time will be no more and it will not be terrifying. All will be well. That's what's coming. Now, how do we put action to this faith? Like, how do we live in light of Christian theology? This is where I want to land the plane, and I don't have time for much, but here's what I want to say. Number one, if you're in the room, and this is the first time this has all made sense, it's actually the Spirit of God that's granting you faith to believe. Grab onto it. You know, crossing the line between life and death from, from, uh, from uh, death apart side of time and life apart of time is simply putting your faith in Christ to say, I see it. I believe it. He lived the perfect life I couldn't live. He died the death I deserved. He was raised up so I can follow him in resurrection. That's the good news. Grab onto it this morning. You can do that. The quietness even of your own heart. And you will be joining the chorus of the redeemed. Now, there's also an application for everyone who has already believed. Okay? Through this book, all 66 books, as God has beautifully revealed it over thousands of years, we can now see literally the beginning and the end. We can see what Solomon wanted to see. We've got it. But what's the part that's still fuzzy for us? The in-between. The in-between. We're still time-bound. So how do we live in faith? Like we know what's going to happen at the end. We know what happened at the beginning. But how do we live now? How do we survive the giant pendulum swings? The health followed by the cancer. The new relationship followed by the breakup. The birth followed by the death. How in the world? Can we survive this? I want to submit to you that we should live with eternity in mind. In other words, there's a sense that we live life backwards. In other words, the only way that you're going to be able to have faith through the ups and downs of your life right now, and I know some of you are just in bad places right now, the only way you're going to be able to look up at God and say you're still good is if you live in light of where it's all going at the end. In other words, if the gospel continues to dig down deep and take root in you, that's the only way. That's the only chance you have. Here's how I'll say it just to wrap this up. If you can trust him with eternity, which we all say we can in our songs, in our prayers as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we're saying we trust you with eternity. If we can trust him with eternity, why not trust him with the right now? You can you can trust him. Our Father, we give you this moment of time. 
where we acknowledge we struggle. We struggle to trust you. Our heads know things that the rest of us is still catching up to. Father, I pray that you'd grant faith. I I pray for those in the room that are in the middle right now of a really hard part of the rhythm of life, a heartache, a hardship, a difficulty. May they have hope. For all the believers in the room, may it be their ultimate hope in you, anchoring their existence to the paradise that is to come. May it be that hope that gets them through this day. And Father, may we not just live like people who think we're, we're passing time in order to get to the good stuff at the end, but may we actually live in the seasons of our lives, ups and downs, good and bad, as men and women who've been recreated by the news of what is to come. May it allow us to fight for what is right, to fight for what is good. May it allow us to proclaim the gospel with our lips so that others will be able to enter into that rest someday. May we not toil through life as men and women who have no faith. But may we walk now by faith, knowing then we will walk by sight. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.